Welcome to a special episode of Call to Prosper. This is your host, Helen Lorraine Ray, Human Potential Strategist. What you're about to hear is a teaching I did for Kingdom Bootcamp Bible Study on June 5th, 2020, entitled, Am I My Brother's Keeper? A Biblical Perspective on Racial Injustice and Social Disparity. I hope you will find this encouraging, thought-provoking, and educational. Thanks for listening. Good evening, this is Helen Lorraine Ray. I am the instructor in the Kingdom Bootcamp Bible Study. And tonight we are going to talk about Am I My Brother's Keeper? A Biblical Perspective on Systematic Racial Injustice and Social Disparity. It is a timely topic which needs to be addressed for the benefit of the church. So I'm glad to see you here. Welcome. If you're seeing this on the replay, I welcome you as well. Let's get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy toward us, knowing that you have us in your hands safely and you will never let go of us no matter what is happening in the world. We can trust you. We can rely on you. You are faithful to your word in all things and we are your children. So Father, we thank you for these moments that we are coming before you, that we uh, will be sharing with you and you will be speaking a word. Our hearts, our minds are open, our spirits are open to you so that when we are done for this period, that we will be better, more encouraged and stronger than when we started. In Jesus' name we pray for a second man. Amen. Amen. So, as you are very much aware, we're in a period of Earth's history that has never been seen before. Everything that has been, that can be shaken, it seems like has been shaken. The global pandemic put the whole world on pause. And against this backdrop, we see in vivid relief the um, social injustices and, and, and the racial disparities that have been perpetrated by this nation, the United States, for many, many years. Every type of injustice has been brought into the spotlight. And you know, someone said before the beginning of the year that the year 2020 would bring us clarity. Well, to be sure, it is bringing us clarity. It's not like we anticipated, but we certainly are aware, awake, and viewing what we never thought we'd see. Of course, unfortunately, with the, um, the murder um, of last week of George Floyd, the whole world has been a witness to the cruelty that black people in the United States have suffered for many years. The, the public response has been outrage, protest, and in some cases, looting, destruction of property. Some cities have experienced um, a great deal of destruction, but the majority of the protests have been peaceful. Nevertheless, there is a backlash, and we find that there are hate groups who are perpetrating themselves as protesters to wreak havoc and to turn the narrative against people of color. These are all parts of the enemy's um, plans. So let's see, how did this 
start? Why did it suddenly explode this past week? Well, it didn't start last week. Actually, the murder of, of George Floyd in before the eyes of the world was a flashpoint that was on top of the accumulation of atrocities over centuries. Let me give you some background information because I want you to get an understanding of not only what has been happening, but also an understanding perhaps of why you do see some young people out there looting who are not part of hate groups, but their anger and their upset has caused them to behave in this way, basically to act out. Well, black people have been enslaved as cheap labor for the Americas since the 1400s. European slave trade was so lucrative for the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, and France that England decided to get involved in it around the 1500s. And as a matter of fact, early records show that England uh, brought slaved Africans to the New World in order to try to establish colonies here. It was a brutal business because blacks were considered to be property, like cattle, not human beings. The Virginia Slave Code of 1705, and that was a series of laws that fully legalized the most barbaric and dehumanizing nature of slavery, was enacted as law here. And from that time on, collectively, black people have been traumatized and abused. Now, the word trauma means wound. So trauma is a wound of the mind, the heart, and the soul. And the word abuse means to use wrongly, to insult, violate, tarnish, or walk on. And this speaks oftentimes to the physical body. But abuse always leaves traumatic effects on the mind, heart, and soul, and sometimes body of the person who's wounded. It is a wound to the whole person and happens when suffering overwhelms what we would consider to be normal coping systems. The memories of trauma infect a victim's sleep, destroys their relationships and their capacity to work, and torments their emotions. The wounds of trauma are not, uh, are not visible, but the effects are. And the mental, emotional, relational, spiritual wounds, like physical wounds, can fester if not properly cared for. There is another aspect of trauma that we seldom recognize and don't talk about, yet it is real. When it comes to abusing people groups over an extended period of time, such as um, Native Americans or, or indigenous peoples in various nations and black people here in the States, they suffer what they have termed to be historical trauma. Now this is the, cum cum the accumulated emotional and psychological wounding over one's lifetime and from generation to generation, following the loss of lives, land, and vital aspects of culture. Now, black people carry the burden of, of historical trauma and it is ongoing. We see the symptoms in poverty, violence, poor health, suicide, unemployment, addiction, depression, hopelessness, etc. What happened to your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and further back? is brought forward and combined with your experiences that you've been a witness to or have endured. 
Now, trauma is passed down from generation to generation on the genetic level. The science of epigenetics, the study of the genes, has shown evidence at the cellular level that powerful, stressful environmental conditions can leave an imprint or mark on the epigenome, the cellular material that can be carried into future generations with devastating consequences. For example, the stressors experienced by a mother in pregnancy impact the baby in the womb. The way she eats, the way she sleeps, the presence or absence of stress hormones in her system, all of these things affect her baby. We have proven that. Research has shown that a baby with a stressed mother has more difficulty regulating and managing their own stress reactions later in life. And babies can be born with a predisposition to diabetes, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and addictive behavior simply because of the environmental factors of the mother's womb. Now that memory of what has gone on before takes on a physical manifestation within ourselves and lives on. So think of your own personal history, your family history. What diseases or disorders seem to be present that the doctor said is inherited? And why do you think black people seem to have a greater history of high blood pressure stroke, diabetes, autoimmune disorders, gastric disorders, etc., than many other segments of the population. Personal habits aside, is the genetic inheritance of black people lacking or have the genes been impacted by generations of trauma? So currently we have a generation of young people whose norm is active shooter drills in school. They've witnessed or been in more school shootings in which their peers were murdered or taken hostage than any other generation previously. They do not feel safe. Adults have not made them feel safe. And authorities on local and national levels have done nothing to make them feel safe. So many times the young people you see in the street who are acting out by looting, they've been traumatized. They're acting out what they feel in their souls. While there are many who demonstrate peacefully, they also are affected. And you better believe that trauma will work its way through their lives in some way, in some form. The manifestation may be different, but nevertheless, they are impacted. So when you consider what has been going on in the last 90 days, the coronavirus, the, the, the huge numbers of people who are sick and dying, and then add on top of that, specifically, the killings of black people who are unarmed, even before our very eyes. Each one of those is traumatic events. Now, I'm not excusing people who are looting, and I'm not talking about the side groups, I'm, I, but I'm not, I'm not excusing the young people who are looting, but I do ask that you consider the situation and extend compassion and understanding. We know in the public school system, if a child has suffered trauma at home, many times the child will act out in school because they don't have the skills yet that would help them to manage the emotional upheaval. Now we're seeing it on the young adult and the adult level. So that brings us to the current state of affairs. And I suggest to you 
that what black people are going through right now is not happenstance. It is not. Actually, it's a three-pronged attack by the enemy. It's a war for the bodies, souls, and the spirits of black people. So how do we deal with this? Knowing at the highest levels, we are being diminished and demonized. We've become targets for authority figures and we are suffering death at a higher rate. There's hope and we're going to talk about that hope tonight. And our responsibility in combating the work of the enemy. Let's go first to the parable of the Good Samaritan because when we talk about systemic um, dysfunctions wrought by a society, Jesus addressed that in this parable. Let's go to Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. And if you'll read along with me, and I'm coming from the New King James Version. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Hmm. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half naked half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he, the lawyer, said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, when the attorney posed the question to Jesus, the scripture says he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he was part of a class of people in their Jewish society who enjoyed great benefits. He had privilege. He enjoyed luxuries. And within the society, because he received preferential treatment, they also considered, for instance, other people to be less important and having less value. For instance, widows, children, the homeless, um, those who are orphans, the strangers, foreigners that would come in, those who were afflicted, 
disabled, they were all considered less than. And Samaritans? Samaritans were barely above a tax collector. So when the attorney asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Basically, he was saying, I only deal with people who are the same status I have or better. Those are my neighbors. Certainly couldn't consider anyone else to be because they are not. But Jesus broke it down to him by using a story, an illustration, to show him that every single human being has value and that the Samaritan, someone whom the attorney would have despised, showed greater love and compassion than he did. He spoke against the status quo, the systems that were already in place and operating that would discriminate against people right there in their own society. Was that radical? Yes, it was. And so with the unveiling of the depth of what we've been experiencing made now visible to um, the public and to foreign nations, it brings us to a point where God says it's time to do something. So in order to do that, we have to decide who do we belong to? Because unfortunately, the body of Christ has not been very good about demonstrating the love of Christ to everyone. Unfortunately, Sunday mornings are still some of the most segregated days of the week. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in which people, the majority of people of color, gather in their separate churches and white people gather in their separate churches for the most part and the two don't mix. The two don't interact. <clears throat> the two are not considered, even though we're all supposed to be reading from the same Bible and following the same Christ. And the world has been watching this. And the world has been saying, well, I don't understand that. That's the same thing that's going on out here with us. And we don't even believe. Where is the love that you say Christ has for us when you two can't even get along yourselves? <clears throat> well. Jesus is actually calling us back to that in this time. This is actually, the season we're in is actually a call from God, first of all, to spend time with him, and secondly, an opportunity to get this right, because God is tired of the foolishness that has gone on with the people of God. So let's look at 1 John 3.10. 1 John 3.10 it talks about whose children we are. And so 1 John 3 verses 10 and 11 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain who was of, of, of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do you recall that, that incident between Cain and Abel in which Abel, his, his sacrifice was offered before the Lord. Cain's was not. And Cain was very angry with Abel, but he didn't take his displeasure to, to God. 
he lured Abel out to the field. And when he got him out there, one of the translations says he slaughtered Abel. He didn't just murder him, he slaughtered him. <clears throat> and that same abuse has been going on ever since. But the scripture here in 1 John says that if we're children of God, then we're going to love our brother. We are going to demonstrate that love. 1 John 3 verses 16 to 19 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, talking about Christ. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. In other words, don't just talk about it. Oh, I love you. I think you're wonderful. God bless you. And yet never demonstrate that love. God says that's empty because love means you're going to work. Love means that you're going to demonstrate it in some way by your actions. It's not simply going to be lip service. You are going to not only talk the talk, but you're going to walk the walk. So love is demonstrated through action. <clears throat> and when we do that, that's when people are able to see the love of Christ in us. So God says, you know what? You're not just loved, but you're special. You are the light of the world. Matthew 5, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He said, I have sent you here to actually influence the world. Influence the world for the kingdom. Be salt. You know, salt is a preservative when it's applied to food as well as a, a seasoning flavoring. It makes things taste better. Or it, it preserves things so that they do not decay. And, and the Lord is saying, I have sent you people into the world. I've given you dominion in the earth so that you would not only preserve the earth, but you would make it better. You would make it more tasty, so that when people experience my love, they will want more of the God you serve. We have not done a very good job of it, but the time is coming when we need to make a change. So what does God really require? That's a good question, because many people during this time are wondering, well, where is God in all of this, and what does he require of me? Do I simply stay home and pray? Hide in my closet? Do I nurse fear? What do I do? After all, you know, this, this could be serious. This could be dangerous. Well, here's what God says. From the prophet Micah, the scripture is Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Yes, that's what God requires. To do justly. To love mercy. Which means that you cannot turn a blind eye to 
to all the inequities that have damaged people for so long. You can no longer say, well, that's them, or, or try to blame the person who may be stuck in the system and is being ground up and saying, well, you know what, they deserve that. They, they did this, and that wasn't right. So however strongly the system comes to bear against them, they had it coming. But what if it was you? Or what if it was your son or your daughter? your husband or your wife, would you feel the same way? What if your child was in trouble and you went to the church and the church said, oh, you know what, he probably was wrong. Whatever he's accused of, yeah, mm-hmm, no. How would you feel? And what would you think of Christ, the Christ they represent at that point? And that's where many people are at right now. So, since God says he's already told us what to do, what he expects, then the first thing we need to do is pray. That is always the right thing to do with an expectation that God will answer. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life for all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yes, God is requiring that we pray for those who have been misusing, abusing us, and express hatred for us. We are to pray for them, not that they will continue in the same way, but that their hearts will be touched, that they will be challenged by the Holy Spirit and that they will respond to God so that they will be saved. Yes, your worst enemies, the ones who have gotten in your face and expressed hatred, the ones who have hijacked your social media posts and spewed hatred, pray for them. Because without someone interceding, the full brunt of God's wrath will come down on them. But God is asking us to pray because as difficult as it may seem in the moment, he loves them too, just as much as he loves you. So what is the next thing that we need to do after we pray? Because that's not the only thing. As Paul said, that's the first thing. The next thing we need to do is speak truth to power. <laughs> yes, speak truth to power to those who are seated in positions of authority, wherever they operate from, whether it's your local mayor, whether it's your local uh, council person, whether it's your county executive, whether it is the governor, and on up. Speak truth to power. And we find it in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And God is very clear about this. That's Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 to 17. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates of truth, I mean for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. A false oath, a lie. Speak the truth. And to give right judgment for truth and justice and peace 
In Old Testament times, it was at the gate of the city where business was transacted and, and, and legal matters were decided. And so God is telling them, just as he's telling us today, he said, I stand for truth and justice and mercy. Those are non-negotiables because they are aspects of the character of God. So we cannot afford to shrink back or back up or turn a blind eye unless we want God to turn a blind eye to us. For certainly, we want in our individual situations the truth to be out, not the lies. How often have we heard lies put forth where victims are blamed after they're murdered, they're demonized, their names scraped through the mud like they're not worthy of consideration. But God says, not so with him. So let's take a look. He also says, we must be just. Now, the justice of God is so important that he talks about it a lot. Let's take a look at the first verse in Jeremiah 22.3. Jeremiah 22.3. Because we serve a just God. And we want justice on our behalf. Whenever things go awry. We want justice. So Jeremiah 22.3 says, Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. When we see those things happening, when we become aware of those things happening, we do not have permission from heaven to turn around and ignore it or block it out. God says you have to stand up and you have to declare his righteousness. How much are we seeing innocent blood being shed? How much are we seeing violence to the stranger, the foreigner, to women and children, to the fatherless, the widows? We've heard some of the most despicable acts and, and, and have been witnessed to, horrific acts in broad daylight by people who have decided they are empowered to do so with no expectation that they will be held accountable. And that is not right. And God is not pleased. And he's going to hold us accountable to that if we say nothing. So, Exodus 23, 1 and 2. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. And it reads thus. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. In other words, don't influence others to pervert justice. Don't influence others to do wrong. Don't tell lies. How much have we seen lies circulating as truth when we know their lies and yet they're pushed as truth and what do we say well everybody knows it's not true but do we push back no we don't god is not pleased about that it says do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness when we are silent when we say nothing we actually end up corroborating what the lie is think about that for a moment our silence then is deemed as consent. Let's look at chapter Exodus, the same chapter 23, and see what God has to say in verses 6 through 9. 
You shall not pervert the judgment of, the, of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. For I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Those who come here from foreign soil, seeking a better life, a better way of life, many of them escaping life-threatening situations in their homeland, how dare we then turn them out and mistreat them, incarcerate them, separate their families, and drive them away? God will not hold us guiltless about that. And he says so right here. He says he will not justify the wicked, nor the wickedness. So we are admonished to be fair. We're to be fair. Let's take a look at the, in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 11 and then 13 through 18, where God talks to us about appointing judges. These are people who will rule over us, who will decide cases when we have a dispute. In, in, in Old Testament times, they were appointed. Now in contemporary times in this nation, they are elected. We have a hand in that. And so when we elect officials, who pervert justice, we are accountable. And if we opt out of the system and decide not to oppose them when we have the opportunity, then again, we have endorsed them. And God is not pleased. Look at what he says. Levitic Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verses 11, and then 13 through 18. You shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. In other words, don't abuse people. Don't lie. Don't cooperate with liars. Don't cheat your neighbor, and don't rob him. And if you own a business and you're employing people, don't cheat them on their wages. Don't withhold their wages longer than need be. God is not pleased about that. Pay them as quickly as you can because they have earned it through their labor to you. Don't abuse those who are disabled, causing them to stumble, causing them to suffer greater harm. God is not pleased about that and he's paying attention, very close attention. So let's look at Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 18 through 20. We're almost done. Deuteronomy 16 verses 18 through 20 says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. He says, don't appoint corrupt judges. It's that simple. Don't show partiality. Don't entertain them if they're taking a bribe. 
And you know, bribes can come in all kinds of forms. Sometimes it's not a direct payment. Sometimes it's influence. Sometimes it's a special deal. Maybe it's a hot stock tip. God says that's, that's not acceptable and he's not going to tolerate it. And those who cooperate with those judges who do so, you have now aligned yourselves with them and against God. But there's more that God requires and that he's very serious about. We should defend the cause of the weak. Let's take a look at Psalm 82. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Psalm 82 verses 2 to 4. God says we are supposed to help those who are weak and come to their defense. Psalm 82, 2 through 4 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Don't leave them in the hands of the wicked. If you know that there are systems in place that are abusing them, do not allow those systems to function. Do not entertain those systems. <clears throat> do not agree with those systems or say that there is nothing I can do because God is going to hold you accountable if you allow them to continue and you do not stand up speaking truth to power and standing for the righteousness of God. Not only are we to defend the weak, but we are to plead the case for the weak. Let's take a look at Isaiah 117. Isaiah 117 says this, Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. This is not a passive command. This is an active instruction that we are to seek justice and rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. God is not in a mood to play right now. And you know, for years we have said, judgment starts at the house of God. And this is where we are. We're God to say, and repent and align ourselves with him. We cannot afford to allow the world to see our misrepresentation of the God that we claim is almighty and that we serve. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be comfortable? No, you're going to have to have very uncomfortable conversations with many people, some of whom you probably thought were friends and you thought were aligned with you and, and others that you knew were not your friend, but you compromised yourself with them. But you're going to have to stand on your faith and you cannot say, well, you know, I, I'm a believer, I, I believe. I just, you know, that's just kind of messy. I don't want to get involved with that. Well, the Lord has a response. When we look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart, be in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The world is tired of hearing us talk about faith. They want to see faith in action because the world is hurting. 
and people are dying. And they're actually waiting to see if the God that you proclaim to serve is powerful enough to change their situation. No matter what they say, deep inside, they're actually hoping that what you say is true, but they need to see it. They need to see it in your life and in the lives of other believers as well. They need to see the power of the love of Christ actively working to make a dramatic difference in the lives of the people who claim to bear his name. The verse says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This land needs to be healed. But first we have to repent so that God can forgive. And you know, repentance isn't saying I'm sorry. Repentance is a change of direction and a change in action. It is intentional. It is deliberate. So we come to a, a place of decision because there are many, many places that we can, can go to and, and, and many things that we can do to begin to impact all these areas in our nation where there is systemic, established racism and social disparities. I would suggest to you that you pray and ask God, where do you want me to fit in? What do you want me to do? And what is the first step? Because it is decision time. This is, the this is actually the greatest opportunity for the body of Christ to stand up and show the power of God and the love of God in amazing and unusual ways. Many times we think we're waiting on God. No, he's waiting on us. He's waiting on us to decide to move. And when we move, he will move with us. I'm reminded about Esther. Esther, the young Jewess who ended up being named queen in a foreign land in a land where the Jews actually were in captivity. And there, just as now, there were enemies at work who actually had plotted to destroy the Jewish people. Their time had been set. The edict had been ordered. And Mordecai, who had raised Esther because her parents were no longer, sent word to her to inform her of what was going on and the plan to destroy the Jews. Certainly she was hesitant at first because there was this law that you could not appear before the king unless he summoned you. So she was hesitant. To do so meant immediate death. But this is what Mordecai sent word to her saying. And this is found in Esther chapter four, verses 13 to 14. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. Your living at this time in Earth's history is not a random event. God was very intentional about having you birthed into the Earth when you, when you were. And he planned that you would be here to go through this experience. Not that you should suffer, but that he could count on you to rise up and lift your light and be salt in the earth. But it's up to you. It's a choice you have to make. That means you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. For many of us, it's a religious comfort zone. But it's time to step out in faith and really work the connection between you and God. You see, although many people say, oh, well, you know, the, the virus was sh shut down the churches. No, the church is an organism. The church is in you. The building's closed. But God, still alive and well, was looking to work through you. And that was similar to the first century, when after Christ rose, even after Pentecost, all that took place in Acts. You know, the Jews tended to congregate in Jerusalem. That's what they were used to. That's what they were comfortable with. But persecution came. And they ended up going all over the then known world just as Jesus had commanded the disciples to do, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, I'm not saying God sent the coronavirus. That's foolishness. But I am saying that God will use events to promote his agenda because he is absolutely passionate about seeing people saved and demonstrating his love in their individual lives. Decide now and pray and then listen for what God says to see what he wants you to do, how you fit into his plan for such a time as this. And then move forward with courage, just as he told Joshua. He said, I'll be with you. Just be courageous. Be very courageous because you're stepping out in new territory. You've never done this before. You've never led before. Now you are going to be leaders in a new era, but you'll be leaders who are working in partnership with Holy Spirit and the favor of the Father, just as Christ wanted. So God bless you. I hope this has been a profitable time for you. Continue to be safe wherever you are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Called to Prosper. This has been a production of Called to Success, LLC. Remember, you have an amazing life. So be safe, be kind, and in all things, be grateful.